From the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies, this is Pardes from Jerusalem. I'm Larry Kluger, Pardes alum. This week, Jamie Salter is a member of the Pardes faculty. And now, Jamie Salter. Pashat Matot Maseh is most often read as a double Pasha at the end of the book of Bamidbar Numbers. The second of those two, Pashiot, Pashat Maseh, begins with the following words. Ele Maseh ben Israel. These are the journeys of the children of Israel. And we're going to concentrate a little bit on what those journeys were that they made across the desert before their entry into the land of Israel. A hint at the difficulty, since the Chumash or the Tanakh, the Bible more generally, is a commentary on itself, actually appears in the Haftarah. The second, when we return to the Torah portion itself, we're going to see a very long and somewhat exhausting list of journeys that the Bnei Israel, the children of Israel, made. And a hint, perhaps, as to why some of those details are included is given to us by Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah, in the Haftarah that we read. In fact, the Haftarah is deemed important enough that even when the Shabbat falls on Rosh Chodesh, the Jewish New Month, when we normally read a different Haftarah, many communities read the Haftarah of Jeremiah for Maseh. And there's one line in which he hints, or more than hints, at the difficulty of walking through the desert. Hashem ha-ma'ale'otanu me'eret Mitzrayim. Hashem who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Ha-molichotanu be-midbar. The same God, the God who leads us across the desert. Be-eretz arava v'shucha. A land of, it translates it here as plain and pit. Be-eretz v'tsalmabet. A land of waste and in the shadow of death. And a land in which no man has ever passed and which no man has settled. Very stark explanation of what the desert, the reality of walking through the desert is like. So when we return to our story, to Parshat Maseh, we begin to read the story of the wanderings of the children of Israel through the desert. Uh, we already have some context if we read on in terms of why we might be told this story. So I won't read it all to you. You're invited to look in the beginning of the Pasha, Pashat Maseh. We're in Bamidbar chapter 33, Lamad Gimel. And there's a, essentially a list, one of the times when there's a long list in the, in the Chumash, in the Torah, of 42 different stations, a fairly repetitive list. I'll give you a taste of it uh, and one of the modern commentators even describes it in a provocative way as, as tedious. There's a, a repetition. The Yisu, they traveled from one place, one example. The Yisu Sinai, from the desert of Sinai. The Yachanu, and they camped in the next place. And then the next verse says they left that place, they traveled. The Yisu, from that place. The Chanu, in the next place. A long list of 42 different places through which the children of Israel traveled uh, through the desert on their way from Egypt to the land of Israel. Uh, it, it's almost tempting, I think, for uh, most readers of the Chumash to choose to skip over this uh, passage. It's, it's, uh, it, as I say, it's fairly repetitive and it doesn't seem to lend itself to perhaps deeper exploration or even deeper meaning making as well. Uh, it should be mentioned, in fact, that the, the obvious way to travel to the land of Israel doesn't entail such a hard journey. In fact, the Torah itself tells us this very explicitly a number of number of books earlier. In the book of Shemot, in Exodus, 
It says the, the obvious way to the land of Israel is along, if you like, Eretz Palesha, through the, through the coast. As you travel up through Egypt to make your way into Canaan, uh, a, a route that many hundreds of years later the Romans are going to call the Via Maris, the way of the sea. Uh, the obvious hugging the coast, remaining on dry land, but hugging the coast and making your way up along the sea uh, to inside the land of Israel. And in fact, thinking about it, the journey that the children of Israel made, as recorded to us in this week's Pasha, is almost, I don't know if you can be almost unique, let's say it's unique in the in the storytelling of the journeys that people make across the desert, a convoluted and difficult journey and uh far from being, if you like, the most sensible, obvious journey that one would make. Actually, in the halachic tradition, the journey is important enough, and I, I think it's partly related to trying to find meaning out of a long list of 42 names. The, the Mishnah Brura records the tradition. Uh, it says, Membet Masa'ot Shabapashat Eile Masa'e The 42 journeys which are recorded in this in this Pasha, in this week, Eile Havsit Behem that you're not meant to actually make an interruption in them. It, that trying to perhaps give some kind of importance or meaning to them, that when we divide up the readings in the weeks, it's true that actually in some Chumashim they do have an interruption in them, and that some sometimes that we do stop reading, but a tradition in many communities is to follow this tradition of the Mishnah Bura, the Halachic Code, the Ashkenazi Halachic Code, and is not have the same reader without calling a new person to the Torah to read all 42 stations, and the justification given in the Mishnah Bura is Shem Keneged Shem Membet. That they're, if you like, equivalent to the, or some ways representing the 42 divine names of Hashem. And it's already looking, why would the Torah include, as I said, a fairly repetitive list of 42 names, and perhaps they reflect in some ways uh, the 42 list of names, that uh, the divine names of Hashem. But let's take it deeper. And what we're going to do is I think we're going to look a little bit at the... Um, some of the spiritual reasons people have looked for why such a long list of names should appear, and also perhaps some of the more historic names and discoveries we made in more recent times. If we turn to the, some of the more spiritual names, I'm going to share with you for a moment the title, actually, which is the title also of the session that Rabbi Jonathan Sachs gives to this journey. Uh, he calls it uh, The Long Walk to Freedom, obviously basing himself on uh, the walk of the the biography autobiography of Nelson Mandela. Uh, the implication he doesn't use these words. Uh, the implication I think is that uh, as much as the children of Israel needed to be taken out of slavery, the slavery needed to be taken out of the children of Israel. About the Bnei Yisrael. Why would that? Why would we have such a long wandering of 42 different stations across the desert? We'll come back to the time frame in a minute, but. As many of us know, 40 years, 42 different stations, as we already mentioned, uh, deviating wildly from the established route, which many normal travelers will take for thousands of years later and thousands of years beforehand along the coastal route. And the implication that it was somehow necessary for the children of Israel in order to, as I said, not just physically to leave slavery, but to take slavery out of them as well. He quotes, Rabbi Sachs quotes the Rambam in the Guide for the Perplexed. It is, well, as a, it is a well-known fact that travelling, says the Rambam, in the wilderness without physical comforts, such as bathing, produces courage, while the opposite produces faint-heartedness. Perhaps this, besides this, another generation arose during the world wanderings that had not been accustomed 
de degradation and slavery. It was necessary, I think the Rambam is saying, that this long walk to freedom was necessary for the Jewish people, for the ch children of Israel, to understand uh, what freedom uh, might look like to take the slavery out, their mentality as slaves, out of them as well. Other commentators as well are troubled by it. Even the classic medieval commentator Rashi, uh, Ibn Ezra and others look at it and again are uh, disturbed by what seems to be a kind of almost formulaic or geographical or historical list, uh, something that on at least a superficial level the Torah wouldn't necessarily include and there has to be a deeper meaning to it. They look, for example, in the first the first verse of our Pasha, just before we're given this long list, uh, begins, technically it's the second verse, Moshe et and Moshe writes uh, their journeys, the starting points, the leaving points of their journeys, Al Pi Hashem, according to Hashem. And only then, and these are their journeys. A reminder that somehow Hashem is involved in this process and there's different ways of understanding why Hashem is mentioned in that different verse as well, but already looking at some of the, if you like, more spiritual meaning behind why this long list might appear. And I want to turn one more idea before we go into some of the perhaps more modern or historical understandings of it. We turn for a second to Rashi. Rashi wants to give us two reasons for why this long list of 42 stations should appear. And we're actually going to start with the second reason if you're reading from Rashi itself, we'll begin with the second reason, then we'll come back to the third reason, first reason according to Rashi's writing. Rashi's second reason, he quotes the Midrash, the Tanchuma, and he explains that it is, and I'll read the English, it is analogous to a king whose son becomes sick. So he took him to a faraway place to have him healed. On the way back, the father began citing all the stages of their journey, saying to him, this is where we sat, here we were cold, here you had a headache, etc. And the idea behind the Midrash seems to be a little bit of a rebuke, but some kind of sense that the Bnei Yisrael children of Israel needed this desert wandering or needed to be reminded of it to understand all the, all the travails and often the misbehavior during that desert. And they needed to go through it in order somehow to be reminded of their behavior. And now they needed to read it, perhaps so that their behavior in the future uh, wouldn't be repeating the rebellious nature of their behavior during that time. Uh, I'm going to turn to Rashi's now, if we read it directly from Rashi, Rashi's commentary on, on these journeys, to his first reason. Because his first reason is going to lead us into the second half of what we're going to talk about, is trying to understand more specifically some of the places within the journey. And Rashi wants to know, he says in the first, and his answer is going to lead us into uh, a more, if you like, physical understanding of where these places are and what they might be about. So Rashi begins his question, the question we've been asking from the beginning, like, why are they written? What, what, it, again, every time there's a list in the Torah, it, like, for what reason in this book of spiritual truth, why would we have a long list of 42 different physical places? As I said, the formulation of which they're written itself is rather tedious somewhat. And Rashi answers us, to inform us of the, of the generosity, of the kindness of the omnipresent, of Hashem. And why is that kind? And we'll carry on reading with the Rashi in English. And Rashi tells us, because even though there was a decree that we should move from place to place and wander in the desert, you should not say that they were moving about and wandering from station to station for all 40 years and they had no rest. Because there are only 42 stages. 
What Rashi is essentially saying is it's a sign of God's, when we read this, we remember that this is God's generosity. We could have wandered for 40 years, literally wandered for 40 years in the morning, pack up our tents, make our way next time, sit down next night. Surely that's a wandering in the desert. And so by only, if you like, having 42 stations, there is a deep message to be read. We have to read these 42 stations because when we get to the end of the list, we actually breathe the sigh of relief and we say, oh, wow. Only 40 times, from 40 years, we only moved 42 times. That, that's a, that's a generosity, that's a kindness that Hashem did to us. And Rashi takes it even further. Rashi says, let's deduct 14 of them, for they all took place in the first year. Uh, and he explains, you can, we can read it together about how, but he works out in terms of the events that happened in the first years going up to essentially to the time when the, the spies, the Muraglim, were sent into the land of Israel. So 14 happened in the first years. And then Rashi says we need to take a further eight stages out from the last year. They're, they're, they took place after Aaron's death. And again, if you read in the in the list of names, Aaron's the place of Aaron's death appears uh, eight stations from the end. Essentially, what we therefore find is essentially that 22 of the stations, you have to do the maths with me for a second, 22 of the stations took place in the first and the last year. So essentially we're left, if I did the maths right, that we actually only moved 20 times during that 38 years, 20 times during that 38 years. And and suddenly, if you like, that ain't so bad, you could say. that That's why we read it. We, we move, uh, well, uh, let's say, about every two years. So you set up camp, people move house every two years, but it's not the wandering in the sense of the, so 20 times every, uh, as I say, in that 38 years as well. And what Rashi does, I, I think partly intentionally, but, but, uh, not necessarily the, the point of the commentary right now is he leads us to ask more specifically. So where were they, Where did we? Where did we rest for those uh, thirty-eight years? Where were? Where was? And there's one place which sticks out. If you go back and you read the list at the beginning of Ban Midbar, the beginning of Pashat Masay, uh chapter thirty-three, the place name that sticks out and it occurs occur again and again in the Tanakh is a place called Kadesh or sometimes Kadesh Barnea. There's a debate about whether, a very important debate about whether they're the same place. I will mention what's already surprising if we read this kind of, you like, almost authoritative list at the at the very end of Pashat Bamidbar, right before Devarim and the preparation to go into the land of Israel, there is no mention of Har Sinai. The, 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 the presence at Mount Sinai itself is not one of the stations. And so as we look through the names, we look to see what where's those places which might have the most significance. And and if we go into it deep, deeper, Rashi's already led us into thinking that, hang on, we weren't wondering quite as much as I thought I was. And if I immediately open the book of Devarim, the very next chapter, as we begin, as we end the book of Bamidbar, at the very beginning of Devarim, I, say, I find that it says very specifically, verse 46, Memvav of, of the first chapter of Deuteronomy, and you dwelt in Kadesh for many days. Uh, we're already told that in Kadesh, that there's a, it stands out of all the places that we were during our travels, that Kadesh perhaps stands out more than the others. And again, there's a reference perhaps at how we actually work out the years in the second chapter of Devarim. It seems to imply that perhaps how to buy read it. In fact, we're in Kadesh for 38 years. It's Rashi disagrees, right? Rashi says that we're actually in Kadesh for 19 years. 
But never, nevertheless, that this place, Kadesh or Kadesh Banea, and whether it's one or two places can also impact on this debate as well, seems to be a very important place in the memory of the children of Israel. And often not the first one we think of. We often think of places, for example, like Mount Sinai or some of the other stories that happened, but often we refer less to the place names as well. And for the last few minutes, I think what we're going to do is we're going to concentrate a little bit about, well, so what do we know about this place? If indeed Kadesh Banea or Kadesh was the main way station that the children of Israel had on their journeys between Egypt and the land of Canaan, the land of Israel, is there anything more that we can say about Kadesh or Kadesh Banea in order to help us understand the journey of the children of Israel through the wilderness of Sinai? seems that the earliest attempts to identify, identify the site of Kadesh and or Kadesh Baner, because at the beginning, the assumption was that they were the same site, uh, was actually that they were east of the River Jordan, uh, plotting the stations on the way. Many modern scholars believe that the only site of the 42 stations mentioned, which can be identified with some certainty, is Kadesh or Kadesh Baner. They disagree with some of the early identifications, we're going to see shortly that they placed it west of the River Jordan. But Josephus, and later after him Eusebius, one of the church fathers, both placed it east of the River Jordan, uh, or at least east of the Jordan Valley, we should say. And specifically, as the Torah identifies it as the place of death and potentially burial of uh, Miriam and Aaron, the siblings of Moses, of Moshe, uh, that Josephus very specifically uh, makes the following comment about its location. He says the following. We're reading from uh, Antiquities of the Jews, the fourth book of Josephus, the fourth chapter. Remember, he's writing in the first century of the Common Era. When this purification, which their leader made upon the mourning for his sister, and therefore he's just talked about the death of Miriam, without specifically locating her burial place, was over, he, Moses, caused the army to remove and to march through the wilderness and through Arabia. And when he came to a place which the Arabians esteem, their metropolis, which was formerly called Acre, but now has the name of Petra. At this place, which was encompassed with high mountains, Aaron went up, one of them, in the sight of the whole army, Moses having before told him that he would to die, for this place was over against him. And then the process... He died in the same year wherein he lost his sister, having lost in all, having lived in all 123 years. And so, end quote. And so quoting Josephus, uh, the death and burial of Aaron, which seems to be immediately after Kadesh, according to the list of stations, stations we have, uh, Josephus therefore seems once to play Kadesh east of the Jordan Valley and actually therefore identify it with the city of Petra. And that was an identification which remained for many, many hundreds of years. As I mentioned, Eusebius, one of the early church fathers, great ge geographer of the Holy Land, a few hundred years later, maintained that identification as well. Um, and that remained the identification for many, many years. Uh, we won't go back in, in, in to read the medieval commentators, but some of the classic Jewish medieval commentators actually separated the two sites. They, they actually made the opposite claim. They say that Kadesh and Kadesh Barnea are two different sites. And that though there's some confusion with sometimes uh, why those terms are used seemingly overlappingly, particularly in the story that we read a few weeks before our story with the Maraglim of the spies going into the land of Israel, 
that they maintain that they're actually two different sites. In the modern era, the pendulum swung back. And actually, if you think about it, modern scientific exploration of the Sinai Desert, of the western Negev and the northern Sinai Desert, or the whole of the Sinai Desert, only began in the 150 years preceding us today. And it was the first attempt for modern scientists to try to identify it. And I'm just going to read for you something from the diary of the first two modern explorers using modern scientific methods to explore sites in the Sinai Desert from an archaeological historical point of view. And they went actually in search of Kadesh. They didn't believe that Mount Sinai either was to be found or would be found. And they went inside of Kadesh. You might know the names of one of them. Uh, they were sent by the PEF, the Palestine Exploration Fund, a British organization, uh, which essentially was the modern first modern attempt to understand scientifically or through scientific method, methods the history of the Holy Land. And the, the, two, the two captains they sent on the mission, the first mission to the Sinai, possibly or actually the first scientific mission to the Sinai in 1868, was captains Henry Palmer and Charles Wilson. You might know Charles Wilson because of the arch named after him uh, in the men's section or inside, further into the men's section of the Western Wall Plaza. And he was one of two explorers. They took with them, and I'm going to quote it with you, they took with them a reverend. Of course, they needed a, uh, a scholar, a, a, a student or a teacher of the Holy Text, a reverend F.W. Holland. Uh, he complained in his diary about some of the conditions. He wrote the following in 1868. For ordinary purposes of travel, the camel is invaluable in a desert country. But he unfortunately possesses so strong a will of his own, and his swinging gait is so prejudicial to the taking of notes or compass readings, that he is by no means a satisfactory animal to ride when accurate observations are required. And for this reason, I regard it as a matter of no, no small moment that we were enabled to perform the greater part of the work on foot. And that's the end of his diary entry of the reverend that they took with him. I, I would imagine his complaints aren't at the level of the children of Israel, but he's definitely... Uh, grumbling about the conditions under which scientists had to work in the Negev. It, it wasn't actually that that uh, exploration, that particular uh, journey, I guess, the adventure of those two scientists. It was a few years later. It was actually T.E. Lawrence of Lawrence of Arabia fame who came across the most serious, if you like, uh, settlement in the Sinai Desert. It was known locally as a place as Tel El Kudirat. Tel El Kudirat is in the northern Sinai. Uh, or northeastern Sinai. Today it's just outside the boundaries of the modern state of Israel, but there is a Jewish communi community very close to the border of Sinai, which is called Kadesh Barnea today, actually preserving the memory of this site. And T. E. Lawrence suggested a hundred years ago, and most scientists today agree that if there is a memory of such a site called Kadesh or Kadesh Barnea, that this is the place to which it should be uh, attached. It's, as I say, it's called Tel El Kuderat. Uh, it's the most significant of all the sites that have been found of ancient settlement in the si entire Sinai Desert. And therefore making it, if you like, the most likely candidate uh, if, if of a prolonged stay uh, and a very deep memory of a site which had some kind of semi-permanent settlement in it. Uh, there is some disappointment for those wanting to match exactly the archaeological finds with the, with the biblical accounts. There's 400 to 500 years of Israelite, most scholars agree, Israelite settlement at the site. But it's from the 10th century through to the 6th century, essentially beginning after 
Yanchi of the children of Israel into the land of Israel. Nevertheless, it was very exciting to find a settlement which uh, is identified with an Israelite settlement, primarily through the writing on ostracon, or ostraka is the plural, of pottery sherds that were found there, uh, which had writing identified with Hebrew Israelite settlement as well. And that's become the most likely candidate for, if you like, somehow preserving a memory uh, of a place called Kadesh in the biblical text. Um, there are some scholars today who have pushed back today and claim that there are actually two sites and want to return back to the idea that this possibly was Kadesh or Kadesh Baner or actually Kadesh Baner and Kadesh is actually, they also want to place back now once again on the eastern side of the Jordan Valley. So I'm going to wrap up there. Essentially what I try to do with you is try to take you through some of the historical memories, some of the spiritual search for meaning in the story that we tell. And also to share with you a little bit of some of the current scholarship and thoughts uh, in terms of can we actually identify, can, can the reading this text actually give us greater meaning from a historical scientific point of view and to share that with you as well. Thank you for joining me and I wish you a Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you on the next episode of Pardes from Jerusalem.